Hey guys. How are we doing? You guys, really, like sitting up front, you guys sounded awesome. Like really awesome. It was so moving, encouraging, inspiring. So thank you for, uh, thank you for showing up ready to worship this morning. That was really cool. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> that was, I, I knew you had the soprano part in you. I was just like, um, continuing on in our teaching series, Broken People, Unbreakable Grace, looking at some characters in the Old Testament. Today, as Ben said, we are looking at Joseph. Joseph is one of Jacob's 12 sons, second youngest. And um, there's lost so many, so many things we could learn from Jacob's story, right? We could learn the negative effects of parental favoritism. We could learn about the negative effects of sibling rivalry. We could learn about how to handle temptation well. We could learn about how to handle power well. But the thing that I want to concentrate on this morning um, is what we do with trials and hardship and pain and suffering. And I was, I was really encouraged this week as I was preparing this, but I was also really, really aware, and I want you, I want you all to be aware, wherever, if you're watching at home, that my prayer has been that like, I know some of your stories, and I know some of you have walked really hard roads. I know some of you are in the middle of really hard roads. And so I, my prayer is just that I would, um, I would handle that hardship and those trials and those sufferings with grace, and I would handle them gently as hopefully a way of showing you that, that Jesus handles our pain and our hardship and, and the trials and suffering gently. Um, sometimes those things come as a result of us, right? We get ourselves in a pickle. We make bad decisions. We bring bad things on ourselves. Sometimes, as we'll see in Joseph's story, they come as the result of what other people do to us. Sometimes there's no reason at all, and we kind of scratch our heads, try to figure out what God might be up to. Regardless of how those things come into our lives, from experience in Jesus himself, we know that in this life we will have trouble. And in our modern Western world, there is nothing that we try to escape harder, faster, quicker than suffering. In Christianity, in Jesus, juxtaposed to our modern thought, right, we, there's hope in our suffering. There's help to be found in our hurt. There, there's a knowledge and, and an understanding to be gained that not one single tear, not one bit of pain, not one struggle will Jesus ever allow to go to waste. And ultimately, ultimately, we have an eternal existence free from all of this junk, the pain and suffering. So I think one of the most important things that we can do as individual followers of Jesus and as a community together is to develop a really strong, solid, um, robust theology of suffering, an understanding of what suffering is that would enable us to, this is going to sound funny, right, to suffer well. 
One of the signs of Christian maturity is the ability to suffer well. What do I mean by that? Suffering well means that we remember the person that Jesus created us to be even in the midst of hard times. We remember that Jesus is glad to be with us even in our suffering, especially in our suffering. We remember that we are to serve those around us who might be suffering. We are to remember that we are still to worship God even in the midst of suffering. That's what suffering well means. And so to develop a theology of suffering or anything else for that matter, there's a couple of questions that we need to wrestle with. What does God want you to know about X, time, money, sex, pain and suffering? How does God want you to respond to those things, the pain, suffering in your own life? And how does God want you to respond to those things in the life of others? So we're going to read some scripture. We're going to talk a little bit about Joseph's life. We're going to read some more scripture. And then we're really going to dig into this idea of developing a solid understanding of a really robust theology of suffering. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 37. Um, Joseph's story is the remainder of the book of Genesis. It goes from 37 through 50, and then we head into Exodus. Uh, but we're going to start here. This is 37, uh, verse 2. This account of Jacob's family line, this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Joseph, snot-nosed little brother, was a tattletale. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made him an ornate robe. Joseph was daddy's favorite. This ornate robe is not just a fancy gift. This is a symbol of like, you guys are going to do manual labor. Joseph is destined for bigger and better things. So he, he gets to wear the fancy clothes. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and they could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheep rose up and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you've had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? I would have thought twice maybe about sharing those dreams with my, my family, but I don't know. All right, so let's look at Joseph's life, right? If that, that kind of midline, just every, everything is okay. Joseph is 17 when we meet him. He shares the dreams with his family. And based on what happens next, we can surmise that that was kind of Joseph's deal, right? Because the very next thing we read is that his brothers plotted to murder him. Right? They wanted him dead. They really wanted him dead. Reuben, the oldest brother, knew that was a bad idea. He wanted to protect Joseph. So he said, you know what? I have an idea. Let's just dump him in a well, and we'll just, we'll just leave him there. Right? We don't have to have blood on our hands. Like Somehow that's 
not quite as bad as murdering him. We'll just throw him in a, in a well. Um, and so Reuben went on his way. While he goes on his way, the rest of his brothers were still there, and they weren't quite satisfied with that. They see a group of traveling Ishmaelites coming, and they're going, they're obviously loaded down with merchandise that they're going to sell. They're like, all right, here's what we do. We can take care of all of this. We sell Joseph into slavery. We sell him to these Ishmaelites. And then we'll fake his death. We'll take that fancy robe, cover it in blood, bring it back to dad, tell dad he's dead. He's out of our hair. We're good to go. That's what they do, right? Reuben is gone. He can't protect him. He gets sold into slavery. See the trajectory of how we're, how we're going here? However, he gets sold to a man named Potiphar, who is a high-ranking official in Pharaoh, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt in Pharaoh's court. And immediately, things start to turn around. Right? He is, he becomes, everything he touches turns to gold in this guy's house. And Potiphar's like, Joseph, you just, you're amazing, man. God is truly with you. Everything in my house is yours. You manage it, you manage it, you take care of it. And it did, and he, he succeeded, and he brought success to Potiphar's house. At this point, the text tells us that Joseph was a good-looking guy. Potiphar's wife took notice of him, and day after day after day, she tried to seduce him. And day after day, Joseph said, no, 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 no. And finally, he's like, how could I betray my boss like that and sin against God? And I'm not really sure what you know, motivated this, this thing. She falsely accuses him of assaulting her, of rape. She tells Potiphar, and he is thrown, Joseph is thrown in jail for a crime he did not commit. Here's this trajectory again, right? These, these terrible things that are happening to him, and they seem to be at the hands, that seem to be, they are at the hands of other people. While he's in jail, again, everything that he touches turns to gold. So we see this theme that even when terrible things are happening, happening to Joseph, God is reminding him that God is still with him. The warden sees the success that Joseph have, has, and basically he makes him the head prisoner. He puts all the other prisoners under his care, makes him responsible for it. The warden doesn't have to worry about anything with Joseph in charge because he takes care of everything. He takes care of everything. While he's in jail, he's got a couple of cellmates who used to work for Pharaoh, used to be high-ranking officials for Pharaoh. His baker, his head baker, and his head cupbearer, the guy who tested his wine to make sure it wasn't, wasn't poisoned. These guys have dreams while in jail that they can't figure out. So they go to Joseph, and they tell him his dreams. Joseph's like, you know what? My God can interpret those dreams. Let me, let me have him tell me what they are. So Joseph interprets those dreams. Things don't turn out so good for the cupbaker. It's a prediction of what's going to happen to him, the dream that he has, or the cupbaker, the baker, right? Things don't turn out so well for the baker. The cupbearer, on the other hand, his dream is a dream of release and success. And sure enough, happens just like Joseph says. The baker is executed, and the cupbearer is released, and he goes back to Pharaoh's court. The only thing Joseph said was, remember me, right? When you get out, remember me. Dude forgets about him, leaves him high and dry. He's off in Pharaoh's court, living a good life, and Joseph is still languishing in jail until eventually Pharaoh has a dream that nobody can interpret. And the cupbearer is like, oh, wait a minute. I know a guy who can interpret dreams. 
and he mentions Joseph to Pharaoh. Pharaoh has Joseph brought out of prison. He tells Joseph the dream. God, through Joseph, interprets the dream for Pharaoh. Not only does he interpret the dream correctly, but Joseph has a plan of what to do. The dream predicts famine in the land. And it, Joseph takes that knowledge and he develops a plan with how to not only protect Egypt during the famine, but make them thrive. As a result, he gets released from prison and Pharaoh puts him in charge basically of Egypt, including their food stores. And he manages things in such a way that when the famine hits, Egypt is okay and they succeed. Now, while this is going on, this is like a Quentin Tarantino movie. There's these other scenes, or maybe like Christopher Nolan, like Tenant, right? I haven't seen it yet, but I heard it's really confusing. While all this is going on, Joseph's family, his brothers, his dad, they're all suffering under the famine, right? So Jacob tells his sons, go to Egypt, and see. They, I hear they have food there. See what you can do. See if you can get us some food. So his brothers load up, and they, they make the trek to Egypt, and they don't know that they're standing before their brother Joseph, who they had sold into slavery. And Joseph recognizes them, and there's a back and forth, and eventually Joseph ends up helping them. He reveals himself to them, and he brings Jacob and his whole family into Egypt and tells Pharaoh they're coming. Pharaoh sets it up. They're all taken care of. That was 13 years. That timeline represents 13 years of Joseph, I don't know, if I were Joseph, I would kind of be left wondering, all right, God, what, what's, was, are we good? Are we not good? What, what's, what's going on? Are you with me? Are you not with me? Um, so we get to the point, Joseph's family is all in Egypt. Jacob is now an old man. And I'm going to read to you um, six verses from chapter 50. We fast forward now to chapter 50 to kind of wrap up the context of Joseph's life. Here we go. Genesis chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Joseph had forgiven them, brought, fed them, took care of them, and now they're worried that he's going he's gonna to have his revenge. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he assured them and he spoke kindly to them. Joseph encountered some pretty high points, but he encountered suffering and hardship of all different kinds. Um, and like I said, most of it at the hands of other people. And I think there's a lot, not just from Joseph's story, we're going um, to venture out into the rest of Scripture, but using Joseph's story as that springboard, a lot for us to learn as we answer those questions, right, about how we develop a solid understanding, a solid theology of suffering. So what is it that God wants you to know? What is it God wants us to know? First, suffering is not punishment. Right? Good things don't happen to good people. Bad things don't happen to bad people. That's not how it works. It's not that linear. As we've seen throughout this series, God uses broken people 
in the midst of their mistakes through the power of his grace to do his work. As we know from life and we know from the rest of scripture, sometimes bad, bad things happen to good people inexplicably. There is not a correlation between what our behavior and our suffering. Our modern mindset wants to attribute that. Like if I do good things, only good things should happen to me. And unfortunately, that's not the case. And Jesus understood that. Jesus' followers actually asked him about that. This is um, from Luke chapter 13. And you'll, you'll see what I mean. Now, there were some, some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Pilate massacred a bunch of people. That's what that means. Pilate massacred a bunch of people for no apparent reason. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. All right, so people suffered at the hands of somebody made a conscious decision to inflict pain and suffering. This is another example Jesus gives. Same, same story. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Construction workers at work and an accident happens and they perish because of an accident. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus is, is saying that they didn't do anything worse than the rest of us. He's, instead of pointing out how sinful those people were who the bad things happened to, he says, humanity, all of you, are guilty of sin. Pay attention. And then he immediately follows up with this parable. And then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and when he, when he went to look for fruit on it, he did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next, oops, sorry. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. The meaning of that parable is that Jesus is working, Jesus is talking to God the Father. They're working together. He wants everybody to come to repentance. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He's asking for more time for those people, for all of us to come to know him and that we might take note when, when there's something that bad happens, we might take note of it and, and turn to God instead of turning the other way. That leads me to the next thing. So, right, suffering is not punishment. And we need to keep a high view of God while bad things are happening, as hard as that may be. As we look at Joseph's story, six times from chapter 37 to 50 is the phrase, but God. And it always means something bad happened, but God was with Joseph, or God did something about it, or God meant it for good. That phrase, but God, is so, so powerful, so powerful. We need to keep that in mind. The other phrase is that the Lord was with Joseph. If you guys want a little homework for this week, go and spend some time in Genesis 39. That's kind of like the, the climax where like all of the stuff kind of comes together. That's when he gets thrown in jail, uh, or that's when he gets sold into slavery, thrown in jail, all that stuff. And throughout it, the phrase is repeated, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. That high view of God is kind of exemplified, I think, in this, in this quote. This guy, Charles Spurgeon, 
said this, when we cannot trace God's hand, meaning we can't understand what God is doing, we must simply trust his heart. So Spurgeon was a, a pastor, a theologian, a great preacher, and we might look at that and be like, all right, that's what Pastor Boy has to say. That's what, like, he has to do that. That's his job. If you look at Spurgeon's life, that phrase takes on a whole different meaning. He was um, leading a very large church at the age of 22. He had two little, two little kids at home, and he was preaching. He preached to full, full rooms all the time. And on this one particular night, he was preaching to a full room, and somebody thought it would be funny to yell fire. And there was a stampede, and seven people were killed in the stampede. And for the rest of his life, he was racked with debilitating depression and anxiety. He could not get over that night. He suffered with great physical ailments. His critics were brutal. He lost a grandchild when the child was very, very young. This is a man who was familiar with the hardship of life, and yet he can say, when we cannot trace God's hand, we can simply trust his heart. We must trust his heart. So a high view of God says God is for us, with us, and in control, even when it doesn't feel like it. That's what a high view of God means. We need to juxtapose that. We need to put that right alongside a humble view of humanity. Our understanding, our wisdom is limited. And that's God-given limits for our good and for his glory. But we have tendencies... <laughs> not good tendencies, when we think about our, our, our understanding of things, it is predominantly, overwhelmingly weighted by our present moment, especially when things are not going well. That's all we can see. That's all we can think about. That's all we can feel. And it affects our understanding. We also greatly overestimate our own ability, our own understanding. Very many of us think that we could do a much better job of, of running the universe than God could, especially when we're suffering and we're in pain. We need to couple that high view of God along with a humble view of humanity, just like Joseph did when he said to his brothers, am I in the place of God? Right? He recognized who he was, and then he put God back in his position. The last thing I want to point out this morning about what God wants you to know about pain and suffering. <clears throat> and before I put this list up, right, this is, this is like, I would encourage you to look at, it's a list of verses. And these are, and this is not even a complete list of all the biblical reasons why suffering might not happen. Usually I apologize for an eye chart, but I, I kind of wanted this to be an eye chart. The Bible is loaded with reasons why suffering happens. Not, not reasons, but um, this is going to sound weird again, right? Good things that can come out of suffering. That's what that list is. It's all the ways that God can take our suffering and use it for our good. This is a, a list that could be and should be studied beforehand. Right? We talk about a lot preparing ourselves for a situation before we get there. Knowing what we're going to do in a situation before it arrives. So we ground ourselves in, in God's word and in all these promises of what God can do through suffering. 
we're better prepared for when it comes, when it comes our way. Um, there, if you are interested in further studying these in the notes, there's a link to this document with all of these listed on them. So you can just grab that. All right. How should we respond, right? Those are the things that we, God wants us to know. How do we respond when we're in suffering? And I would just say grab onto God. Our, well, I won't speak for you guys, but oftentimes my inclination when I'm going through hard things is to say, God turned his back on me. I'm going to turn my back on him. We need to fight with everything we have and grab onto him and hold onto him with every bit of strength that we have when those trials and those hardships come. And then when you get to that point, right, when you have no strength left and you can't hold on anymore, you can let go knowing that he never, never lets go of you. He never lets go of you. As I, was, as I was thinking and praying this morning, I had one of those action movie images come into my mind where like the jacked up hero is like got somebody dangling off a cliff and you see this like this bicep and the guy's hanging on to him. That's God, the biggest bicep in the universe, right? Hanging on to you. Will not let you go. Cannot let you go. And what does that, what, what, what allows him that grasp on us is the personal experience that he has with pain and suffering. Of all the belief systems in the world, Christianity is the only one that answers suffering with suffering. The greatest suffering ever experienced, Jesus on the cross. Right There are other belief systems that when bad things happen, they say, oh, it's kind of like a crapshoot, right? Roll of dice, sorry. Bad breaks. There are other belief systems that say, you broke it, you fix it. And while you're at it, why don't you pay back a little more? Or there's those sufferings and hardships, it's just it's kind of an illusion. It's not really real. When you get to come to understand that, suffering is not a problem. Jesus' answer to suffering is stepping into and experiencing that suffering himself on the cross. The, the divine experience of, of pain and hardship and trial in every way, in every way, is what allows him to hold on to us when we can't hold on to him. As I was preparing for this, I came across the words of a poet. Um, and I'm not sure if he was actually a, a soldier in World War I or if he's just writing from a World War I perspe- soldier's perspective. But in this poem, it's called The Jesus of Scars. He says this, But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds but thou alone. Not a God has wounds but thou alone. Jesus is the only one. The only one. All right. What God wants us to know about suffering, how he wants us to respond to our own suffering, and to wrap things up, how he wants us to respond to the suffering of others. First thing, we should remember them, right? Not like the cupbearer, who as soon as his hardship was over, he forgot about Joseph and his trials. We should remember them. What does that look like? It means being willing to be uncomfortable with people as they struggle, right? It might mean letting somebody ugly cry on your shoulder, right? It might mean sitting there in stillness and in quiet 
because there's nothing you can say. You remember them. Um, it might be, remembering them might be like providing practical, practical help. Maybe they're just, they're in such a bad way that they can't just get the stuff of life done. So you bring them a meal or you pick their kids up at school or whatever. You remember them. I think this is a, a big one, this next one, for some of us feel like we have to defend God, right? So we're quick to slap a Band-Aid Bible verse on things. And absolutely, Scripture can speak into any situation. It can and it does. But a, a, an insensitive, just like, oh, no problem, God brings you know, good from everything, don't worry about it can feel like a slap in the face. Sometimes the best thing we can do is to just stop talking and listen. And sometimes that means just being with them. You don't have to say anything. This is such a critical skill. Like as we think about being a community that suffers well together, just being willing to sit with somebody while they're struggling, to sit with somebody in the confusion of what is going on around them, to be that tangible presence of Christ's love is such a huge thing to be able to offer. And it really takes very little to do it. <clears throat> um, pray with and for them. Typically, when people get to the point where people can get to a point where they're out of prayers, I've gotten to a point where I've like, I don't know what else to ask for. I don't know how else to do this. I don't know what other words to use. I'm out. And knowing that other people are praying with you and for you and over you can be so encouraging and can actually help get you back to a point where you can begin to pray for yourself again. Right, and so this last one is also, right, like, like scripture, we use it appropriately, we deliver it carefully, we deliver it gently. If there is an opportunity to share part of your story, a hardship that God saw you through, something good that God brought out of a hardship, if there is an opportunity, an appropriate opportunity to share that, that can also be life-giving in the midst of that suffering. But again, if in doubt, refer up to point B. Stop talking and listen. <clears throat> so, I don't know where everybody's at in this moment. If some of you are not in the midst of a struggle or a hardship, I pray that you might feel better prepared to face the next one that comes. If you are in the middle of that hardship, know you are not alone. Jesus is with you. We are with you. Jesus is glad to be with you. We are glad to be with you in the midst of your suffering. And if there are people around you who are struggling right now, I hope and I pray that you would feel empowered 
to be able to meet them in the midst of that suffering in a way that won't leave them there, in a way that they might know Jesus' love through your presence. Regardless of your circumstances, my hope and my prayer is that we might become a community that suffers well, and in so doing, right, our own well-being will be taken care of, that we'll be better able to take care of others, and that in suffering well, we might bring more glory to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we again thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the example of Joseph's life. We thank you for what we learn about you and what we learn about ourselves and what we learn about the way the world works. God, thank you that you, you do not leave us alone. Thank you that you meet us in the midst of our suffering. God, and for those who are walking through hard stuff right now, I pray that you would give them the eyes to see and the ears to hear your presence with them in the midst of, of whatever hardship they're going on. God, I pray that you would make us the kind of people who can, can meet others in their suffering and that we would be willing to be uncomfortable and sit in silence and be and pray. And God, that you would give us the wisdom to know when to speak and that when we speak, it would be you communicating through us. Most of all, we thank you that you know the pain and the struggle and the hardship because you lived it and you beat it through your own pain and hardship. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much. In your name, amen.